The following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Don't forget to download our new Podcast One app. I never know what to get my dad for Christmas. He pretty much has everything. The first gift that came to mind wasn't an electric toothbrush, but the Quip electric toothbrush is actually the perfect gift. This is why. It's perfect for everyone with a mouth, like my dad. And it's something he'll use at least twice every day. It has sensitive sonic vibrations that are gentle enough on sensitive gums. And it has a built-in timer with guiding pulses to remind you when to switch sides. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association and has thousands of verified five-star reviews. Quip reminds me when to switch brushing areas and when I brush long enough. That's why I love Quip. Quip looks like a big-ticket tech gift, but it has a stocking stuffer price. It's starting at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash coldcase right now, you'll get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. But you don't have to tell your giftee that. That's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash coldcase. Hi, this is Brooke with a quick update before we get started. This will be our last episode of 2018, but don't go anywhere. We'll work on more cold cases in December and be back with brand new episodes in January. Until then, find more real crime content at aetv.com slash real crime. Thanks for listening. Now, on to the show. This episode contains descriptions of violent crimes and sexual assaults. Please listen with caution. Antoinette Kovar was tired and glad to be going home when her shift ended at 2 a.m. on March 20th, 1992. She was 25 and independent. She lived alone. After pulling into her driveway, she turned the headlights off and got the door key ready. Antoinette then walked the short path from the car to the house and turned the key in the lock. She entered the house, but someone else was there. I thought he was just going to kill me. I couldn't imagine why anyone would come in my house. Why would he be here? What would would his intentions be? That was Antoinette. The intruder would soon make his intentions clear. From A&E, this is Cold Case Files. I had my hand on the handle, but he was behind me and had his hands over my eyes and my mouth and said, don't say a word, I'm not gonna hurt you. The next thing I remember, he was kind of dragging me from the back to the bedroom. He started to pull down my sweatpants that I had and I said, oh my God, you gotta be kidding me. And he threw me on the bed and attempted to have oral sex with me. The attacker positioned himself on top of her forcing himself between her legs. The assault continued until the phone rang. Antoinette told the masked man that her boyfriend was calling. He would be over soon. The attacker quickly dressed and headed for the front door. Antoinette didn't want him to get away. Here she is to explain. He said, don't you come after me or I'll come back. Well, at that instant, when I heard the screen door close, I said, that's too bad. 
and I jumped up, grabbed my, it was a robe sitting on the, my stationary bike. I grabbed that, wrapped it around my bottom, and I ran out the front door after him. But he was gone. I was in the middle of the street. He was gone. Antoinette went back into the house and immediately called 911 to report the attack. When the police arrived, they determined that the intruder entered through an unlocked window in the living room. The search for fingerprints only turned up matches for Antoinette, meaning that the rapist likely wore gloves. After being taken to the hospital, Antoinette was examined, and her body was swabbed for any fluids the perpetrator left behind. A semen sample was collected. It potentially contained the DNA of the man responsible for the attack. All that was left to do was wait for an arrest to be made. Antoinette was determined to protect herself from being attacked again. For like the next three months, I got the alarm put on the house. I walked from my garage door to my back door with a 9mm, daring any individual to come up on me and attempt to do what he had intended to finish, because I was, I was going to let him have it. The rapist doesn't return to Antoinette's home. Though 12 days after she was attacked, and less than a mile away, another woman was assaulted. The attacker first punched the woman with his fist and ordered her to undress. Then, like with Antoinette, he first performed oral sex on his victim, followed by forced intercourse. Detectives watched for any other sexual assault cases that contained what appeared to be a signature behavior of the culprit. He would come through a window usually. Uh, he always wore gloves. He would either cover the victim's face or his face. Was very careful about not being identified. We began to see a um, pattern developing, and we knew that we had a serial rapist. Over the next two months, four more victims report being raped by a man displaying the same pattern of behavior. After attacking the victims, the rapist added one more sickening detail. This is Detective Mark Chambers. He would make them bathe after he raped them, I guess to destroy evidence. He thought, you know, his thinking was he could destroy evidence that way. So he would make the victim bathe. The DNA collected from the six victims are compared, and the investigator's suspicions are confirmed. They were all raped by the same person. The south side of St. Louis has a serial rapist on the loose. In May of 1992, St. Louis formed a task force to hunt for the assailant that was dubbed the Southside Rapist. The team set up a hotline and asked the city for help. A new detective joined the effort. This is homicide detective Cliff Sassinger. The hotline was the main goal that we had, people calling in with all kinds of tips, and we'd follow each lead out. Hundreds of leads came out on this, and a lot of good tips. More than 30 task force members investigated hundreds of possible suspects. After two months, investigators hadn't identified the rapist, who seemed to have vanished. Here's Detective Chambers. And, of course, the theory was then he was incarcerated somewhere, he was dead, or he just stopped, which I don't believe that, but um, some people believe that he may have just stopped doing it. No one wanted more women to be raped, but the investigators ran out of leads based on the evidence available to them. This is Detective Chambers again. My job as an investigator is to find out uh, primarily who did it and bring that person to justice. And it, yeah, it's very frustrating, especially when you have so many of these crimes taking place. 
and you don't have anything. Three months after the hotline was created and the task force to catch the Southside Rapist was formed, they were dissolved. The attacks had stopped and they were out of leads. Knowing that the attacker was still out there made it more difficult for the victims to recover. Here's Antoinette again. Just every person you see walking down the street, everyone you see that says anything to you, you think that could have been him. Why did he say hi to me? Why is he looking at me? Does he know me? Did he know me? Did he come in my house? Does he know something that I should be knowing? And you just think that could be him. Three years later, on January 19th, 1995, Detective Mark Chambers was sitting alone at St. Louis Metro PD. Detective Chambers was part of the sex crimes unit, so when the phone rang at 1 a.m., it was likely not going to be good news. It wasn't. A woman was on the other end of the phone. She'd just been raped. Here's Detective Chambers again. Apparently, the rapist came through a kitchen window because we found the kitchen window open where he had gotten in. Came through a kitchen window and came upstairs. He was wearing a ski mask. He uh, was armed with a gun. He had gloves on his hands. And he did basically the same thing that the Southside rapist had done in the past, including the bathing, made her bathe afterwards. And uh, there was no doubt in my mind that it was the Southside rapist. When Detective Mark Kennedy began his shift at 8 a.m., Chambers was waiting for him in the squad room. He had some unbelievable information to share. Here's Detective Chambers again. As soon as he came in the door, I said, Mark, you're not going to believe this. You know, the Southside rapist, I think he struck again. And his reaction was like, you got to be kidding, you know, where? Chambers told Kennedy about the assault that was reported to him and how it matched the pattern of the Southside rapist. This is Detective Kennedy. The case had been dormant for almost three years, and people were kind of skeptical, but he was insistent that it was the Southside rapist. Detective Chambers sent the DNA sample collected from the victim in 1995 to be compared to the Southside rapist victims from three years prior. Four weeks later, the results come back. It's a match. Here's Chambers again. Everything he did was the same uh, as in the past cases. And uh, it just, I just knew it was him. I don't know, it's a good gut reaction maybe. <laughs> I just knew it was him. In March of 1995, a team of sex crime detectives renewed the hunt for the Southside Rapist. They dug through 10 years worth of unsolved rape files, trying to determine if any of them could be linked to their suspect. Detective Kennedy uncovered several cases that shared the Southside Rapist pattern, but no DNA evidence. Kennedy continued to dig and found two more rapes occurring within a month of each other in 1988. Here's Detective Kennedy again. We, uh brought those cases out of our archives, we found the evidence, we asked the DNA unit to run that, and we linked those two cases also to 1992. We decided to call a, a meeting of all the interested departments from the, from the area to see if any of them had had any, any similar occurrences. At the meeting, more cases of rape were possibly being linked to the Southside Rapist. From Collinsville, Illinois, Dave Roth submits two cases he believed were connected. Here's Detective Roth. He liked to go through uh, windows. Uh, if a window would be open, he'd just rip the screen out and go in, um, unlock doors. 
he would be picking women that were by themselves a lot of the times, you know, although that wasn't the case all the time. Um, so the MOs just matched. We started putting details up in the middle of the night to where we'd have cops in plain clothes in neighborhoods to where uh, had been hit previously. Despite their best efforts, the rapist stayed at large, and the investigators weren't any closer to uncovering the identity of the person responsible for the attacks. Here's Dave Roth again. You feel like a moron. You feel like, you know, you're not doing your job. Um, so you get very frustrated. I spent hours thinking and rethinking about it. Here's a guy, he's, you know he's going to hit, and you know that the same people are going to be asking you questions as to what you're, what you're doing to solve this. You know it's coming, and there's nothing you can do about it. That was Detective Sassinger. And unfortunately, he was right. The Southside Rapist did commit another assault. In February 1995, in Collinsville, Jennifer Jewer, a 38-year-old woman, and her 8-year-old son were at home alone. After putting her son to bed, Jennifer relaxed on the couch and started to read. She fell asleep after less than 30 minutes. This is Jennifer. The next thing I knew, somebody apparently had shut the light off and was sitting on my lap facing me, pinning down my legs and arms and with a gloved hand over my face like this. And he said, if you make any noise, I'll and kill you. You hear me? I'll and kill you. Jennifer was startled awake, but unsure of what was happening. The attacker had turned off the lights. But even if he hadn't, he had a mask over his face. She didn't know what he wanted. Here's Jennifer again. This black dread just washed over me. I didn't know, really. But then he said something to the effect of, um, I ain't gonna do nothing that ain't been done to you before. Oh, then I knew, and then I just, I just tried to fight him, but he had had me pinned down so hard and so tightly I couldn't get away. The rapist forced Jennifer to her bedroom and assaulted her. He put a t-shirt and a pillowcase over her face. When he finished, he sat on the edge of her bed and smoked a cigarette, threatening her. Here's Jennifer. He kept saying, uh, go to the cops or call the cops. I'll um, come back and I'll kill you. But at the same time, I was determined to go to the police. There wasn't anything that was going to stop me. But I wanted to convince him that I wasn't going to go. After the rapist left, Jennifer drove herself and her son to the police station. Detectives escorted her to the hospital where she was examined. The doctors used a rape kit to collect evidence from Jennifer and send it into the crime lab for DNA testing. Meanwhile, Jennifer begins to put her life back together. She starts by writing down everything she could remember about the attack. She gave six tight pages to Collinsville detectives. This is Jennifer again. They read that thing and they said, this sounds exactly like the same man. This is the same modus operandi and everything. Six weeks later, the results of the DNA comparison confirm. Jennifer was the 13th known victim of the Southside Rapist. 
This is Detective Sergeant Roth. We knew what his DNA was, we just didn't know who he was. So uh, we started buckle swabbing people, uh, basically getting their spit and being able to get their DNA from there. And so we'd, we'd go after the white males in between certain ages, uh, see if they had any connections to St. Louis as well as Collinsville or those areas in, you know, in between. Even with the additional evidence provided by Jennifer and her six pages of information, the detectives weren't able to make any progress in their hunt for the Southside Rapist. They didn't give up, though. Here's Detective Kennedy. You didn't want to see him to continue to do this and affect these people's lives like this. You just didn't want to see that. And so it, it, it causes you to realize the importance of the case, and it makes you, it makes you want to focus even, even more on, on solving it. Are you like me and loathe going bra shopping at department stores? Well, now you can skip the trip and find your fit in 60 seconds with Third Love's online fit finder. Just order and try it on at home. No more awkward fitting room experiences. And the fit is guaranteed. Third Love's team of expert fit stylists are dedicated to helping you find your perfect fit. If you don't love their product, Returns and exchanges are free and easy. I especially love the new cotton collection. Third Love takes its customer input seriously. They recently launched their most requested style, cotton t-shirt bras and cotton underwear. The result is a line of incredibly soft, smooth, and breathable bras and underwear you'll want to wear every day. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So, right now, they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash case, C-A-S-E. Now, to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash case for 15% off today. Hey, this is Jordan Harbinger. I used to host the Art of Charm podcast, but now it's time for something new. The Jordan Harbinger Show. Did you know you can be entertained and actually get a boost in your life at the same time? On this show, we dig into the superpowers of the world's most interesting thinkers and top talents. Then we deliver them to you right into your ears. But I get it. We're not all superheroes. That's why we give you their blueprint so you can live what you listen. After a thousand interviews, learning five languages, and getting arrested in a country that doesn't even exist anymore, I'm now more ready than ever to introduce you to The Jordan Harbinger Show. Listen free to The Jordan Harbinger Show, available on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and the Podcast One app. Make sure to stick around after this podcast to get the latest headlines from the AP News Minute. On May 10th, 1995, in St. Charles, Missouri, Sue Klischolte went to bed with the windows of her house open. It was a warm night, and the breeze felt amazing. At around 2 a.m., she woke up. This is Sue. I saw a light come up my hallway, and I thought, you know, I knew it was a flashlight, and I thought, I can't believe my son would try to sneak in the house with a flashlight. And then just seconds later, the flashlight was shining bright in my face, and the voice just said, uh, if you scream or make any noises, I'll kill you. He told Sue he was going to rape her, and then he taped her eyes closed using duct tape. Here's Sue again. He gave me a list of sexual events that were going to take place, 
And um, of course, I started praying out loud and telling me to be quiet, uh, you know, when he first entered my bedroom. After the rape was over, he got me out of my bed, put me in my shower, insisted I take a shower. So thinking that, you know, this is going to be over shortly, I want to make sure that none of the evidence goes away. I just put the stopper in the bathtub and let all the water remain in the tub for evidence. And he left. When the investigators arrived, they processed the scene. Sue's actions helped preserve the DNA evidence left behind by the attacker. It was a match to the samples collected from the victims of the Southside Rapist. Here's Sue again. I didn't have a clue who it was who raped me. I have to tell you, you know, you look at everybody and you go, you listen for their voice to see if it resembles the voice that you heard the night you were raped. After Sue's attack, the Southside Rapist had been connected to 18 rapes in 11 years. But the investigators still had no suspects. This is Detective Kennedy. The problem was that this guy was a ghost. He was a phantom. He, nobody could tell you exactly what he looked like. And if you look at the composites over the years, you'll have six or seven different composites that are completely different people. On September 12th, 1998, Eugene Frigo and his girlfriend were spending a quiet Saturday night at home when he heard a noise coming from outside. This is Eugene. Well, we heard a loud boom, a beating, you know, somebody beating on a car hood or something. And then I stood up and uh, looked out the vertical blinds and seen a face. And then um, he seen mine and then he turned around and started running down the street. Eugene sees the man jump into a van and he decides to follow him. He grabs his keys and starts to follow the man in the van with his car. Here's Eugene again. He was going up different streets, you know, making sharp turns and not slowing down at four-way intersections, you know, where you should, going through red lights. I mean, I, I, I had the, the really sense that he was really trying to get away for some reason. Eugene realized there was a cell phone in his car, and he placed a call to 911. Here's a recording of that call. 911. Yeah, I was at my house. I heard somebody kicking the cars and everything, and I looked out the window, and there was somebody on my porch. The guy spotted me. He ran away. His car was parked at the end of my street. I got him in front of me right now. His license plate is 090BMP, Missouri. I'm going, man, that's, that's not going to slow down. You know, I'm look, I looked down at the speedometer. It's like 85 miles an hour. You know, it's pretty quick. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, like, God, I hope the police get here pretty soon and slow, you know, slow this thing down a little bit. Okay, I got the plate, sir, but I need you to stop following him. Okay, this guy is moving now. I'm, I'm letting him go. Okay, you let him go. You tell me where you are after the police queue. The next morning, police visited Eugene at his home. They took a look around. Here's Eugene again. And then they took a walk around the house, and that's when they discovered that uh, the side window had been kick, kicked in. Mm -hmm. Apparently that was the noise. Eugene and his girlfriend file a police report that found its way to the desk of Detective Randy Sassinger, who was investigating the Southside Rapist. He ran the license plate number of the van, but the plates were stolen. The detectives entered the number into a database to see if any other law enforcement agency had run the plate within five months. Here's Detective Sassinger. A postal inspector had run the plate, and uh, Dennis Simpson was the postal inspector, and I asked him, why he had processed the plate. It turned out that four months prior, 
Simpson was doing surveillance at a house suspected of trafficking narcotics. Here's Postal Inspector Dennis Simpson. Part of that surveillance was uh, monitoring who went in and out of the house, uh, writing down license plates of vehicles that came and went. And uh, one of the license plates that I wrote down happened to be one Detective Sassinger was interested in. So I, I asked him if he would mind if, if I would follow up the plate and actually go to the address, and he, he didn't care. He said it was all right. His investigation was cold. That was Detective Sassinger, who started watching the house on October 15th. He watched it for almost two weeks before the van with a matching license plate number pulled into the driveway. Here's Sassinger again. We drove over to the address, and I asked who owned the, the vehicle. And a person named Dennis Rabbit uh, said he was the owner of the vehicle. And I said, uh, well, guess what? I got a warrant on this vehicle. You know, you're with me. Dennis Rabbit went with Detective Sassinger to the police station for questioning. The investigators needed definitive evidence if they were going to confirm or eliminate Rabbit as the Southside rapist. This was Detective Sassinger again. We talked about the investigation of the Southside rapist, and then I had fingerprints on other burglaries in the same area, and that I would like him to consent to be fingerprinted as a way of eliminating him if, if he's not the person responsible. And I also told him about the DNA buckle swab, which would give me a, a DNA sample for possible elimination as a Southside rapist. The interview lasted four hours, and eventually, Rabbit agreed to provide the detectives with fingerprints and a DNA sample. While they waited for the results, detectives had no choice but to release him. DNA analyst Mary Beth Carr compared Dennis Rabbit's DNA profile to that of the Southside rapist. After six years and more than 600 DNA comparisons, she had little hope for a match. Here's DNA analyst Carr. I was working on the computer and looking, doing the analysis, and I was like, oh my God, it's him. I thought, I, I even said it in the lab. I was, I was looking at the computer, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> About fell off the chair. Mary Beth Carr matched Dennis Rabbit's DNA profile to the genetic signature of the Southside rapist. The first person she notified was Detective Randy Sassinger. I think I almost broke her in half. Uh, she tells me that, and I, I grabbed her and squeezed her, and I was, I was glad to see the end of this, you know. Detective Kennedy, who had been working the case since 1995, was notified about the discovery by his partner. This is Detective Kennedy. She says, hey, you, you're not going to believe this, but Randy, Randy solved it. He's got, the, he's got the guy. I said, he's got him right there at the, sta at the station now? And she says, no, 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 we know who it is, though. We know who it is. You've got to get in right away. Kennedy dispatched a team of detectives to Rabbit's last known address, but they couldn't locate the suspect. They searched the neighborhood and the entire city, but they couldn't find him. Dennis Rabbit, it appeared, had decided to run. Here's Kennedy again. We couldn't find him anywhere. But see, the problem was that Dennis had no fixed residence. He sometimes stayed with friends, other times he'd stay with a girlfriend. So we weren't convinced that he had left the state yet. Three months passed with no sign of Dennis Rabbit anywhere. With so many victims and the perpetrator just out of reach, the pressure on law enforcement for an arrest was building and the victims wondered why he was ever released in the first place. Here's Antoinette Kovar again. It was a mistake. It was a terrible mistake, and I'm sure they're paying for it, but it was a mistake. 
somebody in another jurisdiction, not even 30 miles away, is looking for a man and has been looking for a man for 10 years, and you have him in your hands, and now all of a sudden, he's gone? A thousand miles away from St. Louis, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a mother calls the police to report that her 15-year-old daughter is missing. This is Detective Anthony Max from the Albuquerque Police. She found a, a, a note that had a person's name by the name of Nathan Babbitt, um, a phone number, and a room number. And uh, she gave it to the Sheriff's Department. The phone number was traced back to the Freeway Inn, a cheap motel on the outskirts of the city. Officer Scott Parsons and his partner knocked on the door of room 121. A middle-aged man answered. He saw both of us standing in our uniforms and raised his hands and said, you know, she told me she was 18, and anytime somebody begins their conversation with a police officer, which she told me she was 18, there's probably going to be a problem. That was Officer Parsons. He and his partner asked the man for identification. Here's Officer Parsons again. He began by saying he was Dennis, Dennis Babbitt. Um, it was only about the third or fourth attempt by myself and, and my partner that we were able to get his correct information. He was definitely trying his hardest to conceal his identity. While Parsons waited with the suspect, his partner entered the man's details into the computer. Five minutes later, the system showed that Dennis Rabbit had several outstanding warrants from St. Louis. When the officers told Rabbit he was under arrest, he ran from the motel room and into the parking lot. This is Officer Parsons again. Mr. Rabbit had decided to try to cut between cars, so my in-orbit takedown ended up taking him down into a minivan, at which point um, Officer Middleton, my partner, did uh, basically a hockey check into the minivan. Albuquerque PD notified the FBI that Dennis Rabbit was in custody. The news traveled quickly to St. Louis. This is Detective Kennedy. I'm laying in bed on a Sunday morning, 10 o'clock in the morning. Paul Swenson from the FBI calls me up and says, we've got him. I say, hey, don't play with me, Paul. He goes, no, no, I'm not playing. This is, this is for real. We've got him. They still got him. They're on the parking lot in Albuquerque. They haven't even brought him back to the station yet. I just wanted you to know. The St. Louis detectives traveled to New Mexico and returned Rabbit to Missouri for questioning. He was interviewed by Detective Kennedy. Here's some of the audio from that interview. And understanding these rights, uh, do you agree to be interviewed? Yes, sir. Okay. We're going to start off in uh, 1998. We're going to try to work our way backwards. They asked him about the details of Jennifer Jewer's rape in Collinsville. I've seen her. I've seen her. In it sleeping on the couch. Okay, how did you see her sleeping on the couch? I, I went to the front door and looked through the window. And I went to the living room, and before I woke her up, I turned the light out. Mm -hmm. And then I accosted her. I also had that fake pistol with me. And uh, I took her in the bedroom, and uh, I raped her. Okay, uh, did you uh, perform oral sex on her? I believe I did. Okay. After two hours, Rabbit added 23 names to the list of women he had violated. He eventually pleaded guilty to 49 charges of sexual assault and was sentenced to five consecutive life sentences. This is Dennis Rabbit. Yeah, I, I deserve to be here the rest of my life, but I also deserve some answers on why, where, and why this started. And uh, 
I think the people out there would be better suited if we came up with some answers. I did some terrible things, you know, and uh, I needed it to get it out of me. And I needed to set myself free, and I needed to help those people that I did hurt the best way I could. By admitting to his crimes and pleading guilty, did Dennis Rabbit help his victims with their recoveries? Here's Antoinette Kovar again. Thank God they got the right guy, and I didn't have to testify and go through it all over again because they surely could have dragged it out. And for what reason? I don't know. He admitted to it, and I was glad that it was over. Cold Case Files, the podcast, is hosted by Brooke Giddings, produced by McKamey Lynn, Scott Brody, and Steve Delamater. Our executive producer is Ted Butler. Music by Blake Maples. We're distributed by Podcast One. The Cold Case Files TV series was produced by Curtis Productions and hosted by Bill Curtis. Check out more Cold Case Files at AETV.com and by downloading the A&E app. To learn more about cases like this one, visit the A&E Real Crime blog at AETV.com slash realcrime. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash true crime. detective came and knocked on the door and I said is it Renee and he just gave me that solemn look it was the worst day ever the proof podcast is back with a new case and a new season 23 years ago 18 year old Renee Ramos went missing her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town I don't think that they arrested the right people it's about time somebody's trying to do something She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are gonna judge you, right? Of course, they're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee?